Thanks, Steve. Well, this morning we're continuing once again in, in our series, uh, message number three in our series, looking through the, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, this week is a challenging passage to be able to follow through. So as we get through it, hopefully uh, it makes some sense and hopefully it clears up some timeline issues and you can start to see how this these events fit in amongst all the other events that we've looked at through Daniel and Esther uh, in, in previous years. And let's pray as we come to the word this morning. Heavenly Father, it has been just so good this morning in worship to reflect on your love, your power, your provision, your grace and your mercy. Holy Spirit, as we come to your word this morning, our hearts long to be transformed. Our hearts long to be renewed. Lord, help us to see your righteous ways, your holy ways, and to follow you that little bit more clearly. Amen. One thing that I have learnt throughout life, and it's not, it's not a unique lesson, uh, if you've lived for any amount of time, I think you, you've all discovered this, that there is no escape to challenge. There is no escape to obstacles in life and opposition. Throughout history, there are countless testimonies to good people doing the right thing and yet struggling. Have you ever felt like life just does not seem fair? Like you're fighting the good fight, yet you're working towards godly values and godly outcomes, yet just seem to be knocked down at every turn. And sometimes it feels like those who cut corners who look out for themselves first and only and always do what suits them best seem to get ahead in life. And those who do the right thing, often at great personal sacrifice, seem to struggle. If you feel like that sometimes, you're not alone. In, in Psalms, David asks of God, why is it that evil men prosper? As we look through some, some key people in the Bible, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, Gideon faced uh, insurmountable opposition. In Judges chapter 6 and 7, the Midianites were oppressing, so Israel had done evil in the sight of the Lord, as is the pattern throughout Judges. They, they walk away from God. They, they walk from their relationship with Him. They, they worship idols and do all sorts of evil things. And so God disciplines them and punishes them, uh, which, is, which is sort of like what we've seen in the prophecy that uh, Ezekiel had in uh, Ezekiel 16, right back in the first week of this, where God promised that, that when they walked astray, he would discipline them. And then they would return and, he would, and then they would walk away and he'd discipline them. And he'd keep on doing this right up to the point that they would not re repent and return to him. And that's when he, he sent the, the northern kingdom uh, in, into exile. But, but back here in, in Judges, so Israel has entered the promised land under Joshua. Joshua has done his bit and then he's handed it over to the, the tribes to finish off taking possession of the land. And, and this is the season of the Judges. And Gideon is one of these Judges in chapter 6 and 7. We read about the Midianites have come down to by God to discipline Israel and they've done that for a point and Israel are now turning back to God and, and calling out to God 
And God chose Gideon. He called Gideon. He, he called Gideon to lead Israel. Now, some things that we know about Gideon. He was from the weakest clan in the tribe of Manasseh. And of his father's household, he was the least significant man. The weakest tribe and the least in his family. And God said, Gideon, I'm calling you. Remarkable, isn't it? Because here is a man who had no authority, no influence, no power of his own to rally Israel behind him. And, and yet, uh, after laying some fleeces before God to, to get some confirmation, hey God, are you sure about this? Is, is this really what you're asking me to do? Uh, I'm not so sure I can do this. He, he had massive doubts. He stepped out in faith and he, he rallied all the men of Israel to come out and to form an army that they may stand up against the Midianites. And 22,000 men came. I can imagine Gideon standing there looking at these thinking, yeah, okay, 22,000, we, we can do something here. We, we've got some, some momentum, you know, 22,000, that's a decent army. God said, hey, Gideon, you've got too many. Go and ask them, ask if, if anyone wants to go home, if anyone is afraid of what, what they're about to get themselves into, tell them that they, they're free to go home. After he did that, there were 10,000 left, less than half. And at that point, you've got to feel like Gideon's heart's starting to pump a bit. And he's starting to think, well, you know, 10,000 is nowhere near as good as 22,000. But okay, God, 10,000, like, I can work with that. We, we, can, we can work with that. We can still do something. And God comes down and says, hey, Gideon, you've still got too many. He said, take them down to the, the river and watch them drink and those that put their hands on the ground and and dunk their face in the water to drink send them home only those that that lap the water with their hand into their mouth keep them okay god uh, you know best <laughs> he does that 300 300 men is all that gideon had left As he followed God's instructions, we, we read in, in Judges that uh, God gave them instructions to locate themselves around the Midianite campsite, to keeping their, their candles, their torches underneath a vase and the appointed time in the valley, around the valley to break the jars, exposing the lights, to cry and to blow their trumpets. And as they did, the Midianites fled in terror. Israel did not need to lift a finger. Hezekiah uh, was king when, when the northern, he was king in, in Judah, the southern kingdom, when the northern kingdom was taken off into exile into Assyria uh, by Sennacherib. And Sennacherib had come down and, and he had besieged Jerusalem. He'd cut off all of their exits and their access points so that they could not get fresh food or water at all. Hezekiah found himself as king of Judah in this helpless situation with no solutions and no escape. We read in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19 about this. And at the end of chapter 19, after Hezekiah had come before God and just prayed, 
Uh, Isaiah the prophet speaks into this, this time as well. And they wake up one morning to find that, the, that God had delivered them, the people of Jerusalem, by striking down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Israel did not need to lift a finger, despite being faced, facing these insurmountable opposition. In the New Testament, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul recounts a little bit of his testimony of what he has endured. Someone who took the gospel at great lengths to the ends of the earth. You would think surely someone like Paul, God would, would watch over. Surely someone like Paul, God would spare from these challenges and these obstacles. But this is what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. As we work down through the ages, William Tyndall was executed for translating the Bible into English so that the common Englishman could access God's word. George Muller ran an orphanage to educate and care for homeless children. Frequently, he found himself without the required support or resources that he needed to provide for them or to simply feed them. There's often a part of us as Christians that want to believe that if we say a prayer and if our faith is strong enough, if we're good enough, then we won't go through any hard times or we shouldn't face any problems. And this is partly what I think goes behind the, the, the end times view that, that Christians will be spared tribulation. But that's not a biblical perspective. It was Jesus himself who said that in this world we will have tribulation. In this world we will have opposition. In this world we will have persecution. If you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Ezra chapter 4. We're going to be covering a fair chunk of this. It's something you may want to go uh, back this week and, and have a look over, uh, read, read through. I encourage you that we're going to be working our way through the entire book of Ezra and the entire book of Nehemiah in this series. So if you're looking for some, some Bible passages to be reading uh, during your, your quiet times, this is a great place to be starting. Ezra chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Eshadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the houses of Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. 
and bribed counsellors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of King Darius, uh, Darius, king of Persia. And what's, what's really significant here is that even though these, these people that Assyria had bought, brought in to dwell in the place of, of, of Israel, even though they came and they said, hey, we've been worshipping your God too, wisely these the, these leaders of the people of the exiles that had returned said no. And it, and it was a wise thing because while that's what they said with their mouths, what they actually did in their hearts and in their actions, they weren't worshipping God. And they, they kept out the wolves from their worship, their place of worship. Before we continue on uh, to verse 6, I, I want to just explain some of the time. Can we have the timeline up um, here? This is, this is something that is going to hopefully help put together. Now, I haven't done this to scale, um, but, but hopefully it'll put things into perspective and we can sort of see um, what's going on there. What have we done? Thanks, Benny. We'll, we'll try and get it up there. Um, Essentially, let's, uh, let me take you back to Daniel. Remember at the start of Daniel, um, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is king. After Nebuchadnezzar, we, we see Darius the Mede as king. That's important to remember because we're going to hear about another Darius. We heard about a Darius in Ezra. That's not the same Darius. So we had Darius and then Belshazzar was the, the last king in the book of Daniel. Uh, before before Cyrus. Now, Belshazzar shouldn't be confused with Belteshazzar, which was the Babylonian name given to Daniel. So have you got that? We've got Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Belshazzar, not Daniel, Belshazzar, and then Cyrus. So Cyrus then was the first king uh, uh, that, that conquered Babylon. After Cyrus, he had his son, uh, and then there was another guy um, who, who reigned very briefly. It was a period of turmoil after Cyrus for a few years. And then King Darius took the throne. Dar the Persian king Darius came to the throne. And this is the Darius that, that Ezra is talking about in verse 5. So during that, that period of t turmoil, there was, there was this conflict um, between... Uh, there was this opposition to the exiles in Judah and Jerusalem rebuilding. Um, after Darius, we have King Xerxes, which you'll remember from the book of Esther. So this is where Esther fits into the picture. So we have Darius, then Xerxes, and then Artaxerxes, which comes after Xerxes. And, and he, we find, at the end of the book of Ezra and also the beginning of Nehemiah. So, so that, that's the progression. We go Cyrus, Darius from verse 5. And what we're about to get into, he's jumping ahead of Darius and talking about Xerxes and Artaxerxes. And then we're going to jump back um, in, in chapter 6 to uh, Darius. So are you with me? <laughs> there we go. Fantastic. Lovely. So, so we're, we're talking at the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, about Cyrus to Darius. And then we're about to go from 6 to, um, to the end of chapter 4. We're going to be jumping ahead to Xerxes 
Xerxes and Artaxerxes. I'll, I'll do it this way so it reflects what you see on the screen. And then uh, in chapter 6, we're going to jump back to Darius. All right, so let's have a look in verse 6. In the reign of King Azarius, that's King Xerxes, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days, in the la, in the days of Artaxerxes, Bislam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of the associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Reum, the commander of Shishmashai, the scribe, wrote, the, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Reum, the commander, Shishai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and to the rest of the province of beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greetings. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that a search may be made in the book of records of your fathers, you will find in the book of records and learn this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces. And the sedation was stirred up from old. That was the, why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession of the province beyond the river. Then the king sent an answer to Reum, the commander of Shishai, Shimshai, the scribe and the rest of the associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greetings. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and I search, a search has been made, and it has been found that this city from old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedation have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, Make a decree that these men be made to cease and this city shall not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Xerxes, Artaxerxes' letter was read before Reum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease it's often at times like these when uh, our circumstances seem to be going against us that we lose heart and we lose hope we might even fall in a heap maybe even give in and give up I remember when I was a young child and and, and um, I, so I'm I'm 
um, the proportion here is, is from a nine-year-old uh, to you know, something that was happening to these men. The scale is very different, but the, the sentiment's the same. When I was nine, um, I remember uh, trying to do my maths homework one day, and I just couldn't do it. My dad, who was a, a senior maths teacher in high school, um, was explaining to me these principles of grade four maths. Um, and, and he did it, he must have done it four or five or six times in, in different ways. And, and I, I just felt so overwhelmed that I just couldn't get it. I fell in a heap on the floor crying. Dad, it's just too hard, it's too much. There were other times. Um, that my mum would come into my room and remember, you know, the nine-year-old boy, um, my room was not tidy or ordered. Um, it was a mess. And, and the number of times that mum would say that, you know, you're not going out until this room is clean. Anyone else had, had that ultimatum given to them? Yeah, I didn't know where to start. It just seemed like the, the task at hand was just so overwhelming. Yeah, those, those situations pale in the significance to, to what the, the exiles are going through. But it gives you that, that, that relatability, doesn't it? That we, we all go through these times where our, our situation and our circumstance, just the events around us, maybe it's, it's the weather is just always preventing you from getting out and going fishing. Uh, it's, it's always been preventing you from, from achieving something. There, there are those situations that are outside of our control. That, that get the better of us. But, but sometimes our op- opposition, our obstacles are not just our circumstances, like the task being too big or the weather being against us or you know, technology crashing, as we've, we've seen today. Sometimes the opposition comes from other people. We might tend to develop, uh, we, we have this tendency to develop an adversarial attitude like they're out to get me, so that means that I need to fight back. They're against me, so I've got to be against them. It's a kind of black and white thinking that we're either all together or that we're all divided. But the, the reality is that uh, it doesn't have to be like that. Just because one thing might be true, that they don't like me, doesn't mean that I have to not like them. Just because someone is angry at me doesn't mean that I have to be angry at them. Or or if someone hates me, it doesn't mean that I have to hate them. Or if someone hurts me, it doesn't mean that I have to hurt them. But we often default to these behaviours and attitudes, don't we? The reason we have this tendency is because we're broken. These behaviours and attitudes are not the ways that Jesus lived or the way that Jesus loved. Consider the contrast to those, those tendencies that we have to default to that, that kind of reaction to how Jesus responds. In, in 1 John 4, verse 7 to 10. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever, has, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You see, God from the outset says that one does not equal the other. When, when people oppose us, when people ridicule us, when people persecute us, when people hate us, the heart of God, the nature of God that, that is at work within us says that we respond the way Jesus did for us in love. In Romans 5, 8, Paul says, But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While we were in opposition to God, while we opposed him with our words and our actions and our attitudes, while we defied his ways and his righteousness, his reaction wasn't to defy us, to judge us. His inclination was not to send a judgment down upon us, but to to seek to bring redemption to us by dying for us. In Romans 12, 2 Paul encourages in, in this kind of, kind of way. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not react and respond and live in the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, your thoughts and your attitudes, that by, the, by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. You know, you see that the correlation there that until we, we submit ourselves to be transformed by the work of God, by the renewing of our minds, our attitudes and our thoughts, we'll never be able to fully comprehend or understand or discern what God's will is. Following Jesus won't be easy. We face all kinds of problems, but the solution to these obstacles isn't to behave the way that the world behaves. It's to draw near to God to pursue God's heart and to learn what it is like to respond like Jesus did to people who are broken and sinful. I think of the lady, the woman caught in adultery. How, how did Jesus respond to this woman who was dragged before his presence with a, a group of men crying out for her to be stoned, that Jesus should give the order? He responded with compassion mercy and love there was grace in his words as he told her to go and sin no more when when jesus saw zacchaeus a tax collector who, who robbed and thieved from from those he collected tax from climbed up in a tree just so he could get a glimpse of jesus he stopped said zacchaeus come down I'm eating with you tonight. The woman who was bleeding and she touched Jesus' cloak. And in that moment, in that instant, her body was healed. Jesus didn't stop there. He he paused in the midst of the crush of these people and he drew attention to this woman, something that, that she would not have wanted in that moment. But he was about to do something greater, something more significant for her. This woman who had been shunned and outcast from her community, from her family because of her illness. Jesus called attention to her. And he said, your faith has made you well. He he reinstated her 
in the eyes of all those around her, in the eyes of her family, in the eyes of her community, Jesus gave her validation. Jesus gave her worth and value. This is how Jesus responds to sinners. This is how Jesus treats the broken. And for us in the world, you know, we, we face all sorts of people with all sorts of motives and actions. As Paul reminds us in, our, in Ephesians, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but it's the spiritual principalities. Because the flesh and blood that speak out against us, that oppress us just like those inhabitants that have been placed around Jerusalem and in Judea by the Assyrians, oppose them. The battle is not, not with them. They are the lost and broken that God desperately desires to be saved. God has a plan. And where God has a plan, he provides the way. It's God who is responsible for the outcomes and the results. For our part, he asks that we persevere. If you want to look at the book of Revelation, start with chapter 1 and 2 and 3. Read the message of the letters of, of the angel of God to the, to the churches that says, persevere, stand firm in your faith, despite the obstacles, despite the challenges that you face. Trust me. I have, got the, I have won the victory. That is, that is in a nutshell the, the, the message of the book of Revelation. At the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6, we see that despite the opposition, when the people of Judah remained faithful and steadfast in their obedience to what God was asking them to do and how he was asking them to do it, the temple was completed. And we're going to pick up in, in verse 24 of chapter 4. And this is at the end of Ezra's sidetrack where he'd gone from, uh, jumped ahead to Xerxes and Artaxerxes. Now we're jumping back in verse 24 to Darius. Um, Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, so here's a couple more of the books of the Old Testament. This is where they fit in, in the timeline of, of what's going on and the context of what's happening. Uh, the son of Ido prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God with, with them, supporting them. Interesting to note here that this is without the decree of King Artaxerxes. At that time, uh, sorry, without the decree of, of Darius, because we, we jumped ahead to Artaxerxes. We'll, we'll come back to Artaxerxes in Nehemiah. Uh, this is Darius. It gets confusing. <laughs> At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, uh, and Shether Bonzai, Bonezai, Bozenai, Shesha Bozenai, there we go. And their associates came to them and spoke to them, who gave you this decree to build a house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building the building? But the eye of God was on the elders and the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned 
by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report and in which was written as follows, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in its wall. The work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build the house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down their names of the leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, with, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people into Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made of the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. One of the things that's remarkable about the faith of of these leaders is that they never stopped, despite what was being pressured upon them, they never stopped being faithful to the obedience of God. And I want to unpack a little bit of that in a a minute. What does that mean for how we live out our faith as a church here in Bowen uh, amidst the uncertainty that is around with, with government regulations and things like that? Because it would be very easy for us to to look at this passage and say, see, they defied government orders in order to rebuild the temple. I want to show you that what we have from Christ onwards shows us something greater and more significant. That our faith should not reside simply in a Sunday morning. It should not reside in, in this building. In the same attitude and and fervency and faith that these leaders demonstrated in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, that we should be focused on rebuilding in our own lives. So we'll come come to that shortly. Darius does as Tetanai had requested and he makes a decree and we pick up uh, in in verse 8 of chapter 6. Moreover, I make a decree, Darius says, regarding the, what you shall do for these elders. 
of the Jews for rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, of the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day, without fail that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. Wow. Where God has a plan, he makes a way. The temple was finished and dedicated. The people worshipped there and celebrated the Passover festival. The exiles returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. They honoured God with their faithfulness and their diligence to the task that God had given them. Paul tells us in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. Don't get me wrong, it is important and and, and Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews emphasizes this. It is so important for us to gather together, to encourage one another, to worship together. God did not create us to live in isolation. But if we become so focused on a Sunday morning that we neglect the rest of the house of God throughout the week, then we have failed in our obligation to live with God, to worship God. I wonder if if we could say with the fervency of those elders of Judah and Benjamin, I am the servant of the God of heaven and earth and I am rebuilding the house which was built many years ago by a great king of Israel. The difference for us, they were referring to Solomon. We are referring to Jesus. The man who said, in three days, I will tear down this house and rebuild it. Our faith should not exist inside four walls. Our faith should exist in the Word in every moment of our life. Can you say, make this your prayer, I'm a servant of the God of heaven and earth and I'm rebuilding the house of God that was built many years ago by a great king, King Jesus. That is our call, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we might be redeemed and restored 
to a righteousness that is not our own, to a glory that is not ours but of God's. May his kingdom come. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much that we wrestle with in life, so much that we battle with, so much that, that overwhelms us, that worries us, that causes us to get angry and frustrated. Well, there are times where we don't know which way is up and what to do and what to say. Lord, there are times where, where every fibre in our being just wants to, to fight, wants to lash out. Lord, but we recognise that you have a different way, a better way. Lord, that when we, we don't know the answers, when we don't know the way forward, we, when we don't have a plan, you do. When we can't make that plan work, you can. Lord, our prayer this morning is simple. We are your servants. The servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we desire to rebuild your house in our heart. A house which you built through King Jesus many years ago. We humbly bow to you and ask you to transform us, Lord, little by little, day by day, moment by moment. Amen.